Amen? Well, let's, let's get into some more Genesis. Uh, hopefully you've been enjoying it. Uh, really just, you know, I mean, this is, Come on, these chapters here, 44 and 45, uh, are, are, are some of the, the best, I reckon, uh, in this final section. And it's pretty, it's, you know, we, we talked a lot about some maybe uh, a little bit less pleasant topics last week. Right. Uh, we have this, you know, the, the build-up here, 42, 43. It's been Joseph and God kind of just tightening the screws on his brothers, uh, pushing the, the the guilt buttons over and over and over again. Right? We saw him do it in, in a variety of ways. Right. And some of it is just purely God. Right. God orchestrated a famine. Forcing the brothers to go to Egypt to find refuge from that famine, uh, which is the very place they sent their brother, right? And, and, and even as Joseph deals with them, there's lots of uh, tasty irony that he uses to kind of begin to open up the wound uh, of their guilt that they had been covering over for a long, long time. Decades uh, of undealt with uh, sin, and, and, we, and we talk about guilt, because guilt is a complicated thing for us as Christians. We often mishandle guilt, uh, and we often do those things you can see on the screen there where we deny it, uh, we try to drown it uh, with self-justifications, we try to deflect it by blaming others, uh, or we just try to run away from it uh, and put our heads in the proverbial sand and act like we don't have any guilt, uh, which these brothers had most likely been doing a combination of all those things for decades. Decades. And yet God continued to work with them and push them and prod them. And his, you know, God's aim, as we've seen, uh, is to save. And one of the ways God's going to do that is he's going to uncover their guilt, which they've tried to cover. He's going to bring it to light. He's going to make it plain and make it seen. Uh, we're going to see that even more so in, in our text today. But I want you to keep, keep your eyes on that. Uh, and we didn't talk about this as well last week. Is that, that everything God is doing, everything that, 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 that our sovereign God is arranging uh, and bringing to pass here through Joseph, all has the same common aim, and that is to save. So not just save physically from the family, but to save spiritually the souls of all those involved. And it's embedded in chapter after chapter, right? Uh, chapter 45, verse 5, and then again in verse 7. Uh, Joseph tells him it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great de deliverance. Mm. Uh, the closing chapter of all of Genesis, uh, chapter 50, verse 20, you, Joseph tells his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Mm. Uh, the interesting thing here in the text that we'll read in a moment uh, is the turning point all revolves around silver. Silver cup. Right, God's going to use that, you know, item uh, of silver uh, to, 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 like I said, kind of reopen that wound of the brothers having sold out their brother for silver. Uh, that it's again going to be silver that's going to entrap Benjamin. And it's again going to be the, the mechanism by, by which God uncovers their guilt. And, and even as Joseph sends his servant uh, to, to, to track them down, the question posed there is a key question to think about as we read this. Right? Joseph instructs his servant to tell the brothers, Why have you repaid good with evil? Why have you repaid good with evil? 
Right? And of course, the irony is, what is Joseph doing? He's repaying their evil with good. And again, it's a powerful demonstration of the gospel and how God works in our lives. How do we live? We live oftentimes centered on evil. And yet, despite that, what does God do? He pours out goodness. Ultimately, in sending his son. And so we'll pick up where we left off there at the end of 43. Right? They're having this great feast. The meal's completed. The brothers' stomachs are full of food. Their hearts are filled with joy. Uh, they've got Simeon back. It looks like they're heading back to their father with Benjamin. Everyone all together again, minus Joseph. But as we see here, as we're talking about, God's not quite done with them yet. So let, let's read together here, starting here in 44. We'll read all the way through 45. I should have gotten Michelle to do it, but nonetheless, let's go. <laughs> way better. Right, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill them in sacks with as much food as they could carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of the sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys they had not got, gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Is this a, isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your service to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you said. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward began... Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And a cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and the brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find, out, find things out by divination? What can we say, my Lord, Judah replied? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who has found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who, has had, who was found to have the cup will be my, be my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, that you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord has asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. And when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. 
Then our, then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of, of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy, and let the boy return with his fathers, for with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard him. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified of his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When he had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and all you have. I will provide from you for, for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt, and, bring him, and, and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. And he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers who wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this, take some cars from Egypt for your children and your wives, and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. And he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. <laughs> so he knew they were going to have to face death and own up. 
Uh, so they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to, to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Amen. Amen. We can honestly just read that and call it a day. <laughs> it's, a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal story. Uh, a, a great conclusion to, to, to what God has been working uh, in many ways in, in the lives of these brothers. But we will uh, have a prayer and we'll look at a few points from it uh, that will hopefully inspire us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, you know, we thank you, God. We thank you. You're an eternal God. That, that, that so often works through decades and decades. And as we consider just the, the, the turning point here in, in, in the narrative of Joseph and his brothers, uh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are patient, that you are tolerant, that you are kind, way beyond what we deserve, way beyond what we could ever merit, God. Uh, and we know you do all those things, God, to, to save us. Amen. Father, as we, as we consider repentance, and as we, as we look at the story and see the repentance in the brothers, God, we, we pray you inspire us to live that way in our own lives as well. We thank you, God, for the grace you pour out on us all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Great, great, great story. And as I prayed about it, it is, it is all about repentance. Uh, you know, in it, the, the previous sermon last week and in, in, in the text this week, that. that in many ways are just a playing out of this text here on the screen uh, in 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, I don't have to turn there, but, but you know, I'll it to you. You know, Paul is, 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 is writing to, to the church in Corinth, and he tells them, Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful. As God intended, and so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads to no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Right? This section of Genesis, these four chapters, is, is that. It is that process. Right? The brothers are, you know, just like the church in Corinth, they're in sin. And Joseph and God are using life, circumstances, even their own words... To, to, to help confront them with the truth of that sin. And that process is painful, and it does hurt the brothers. You can see the pain in, you know, throughout these chapters in the brothers uh, as they're forced to look back on one of their big failures in life and to confront that, and they are flooded with sorrow. Uh, but Joseph is not sorry about it because that sorrow that they are experiencing is actually leading them towards repentance. And even in this chapter, uh, chapter 45, as it closes out, I mean, we get a glimpse of the salvation that follows that repentance. I mean, Joseph's family is going to come, you know, Ju Ju you know Israel is going to come down with them in the, in the chapters to come, uh, and, and, and they're essentially going to pillage Egypt. All, all the best of Egypt. Egypt is being impoverished by Joseph as he's selling all the grain to them. They're selling all their possessions. And, and wealth and prosperity is just flooding into Israel's household. Why? God's great plan. But how did they align with it? Well, for the brothers, it was about repentance. 
They needed to repent. I mean, you think if they didn't repent, how would it play out to them? Think back to the previous week. You remember how Joseph takes Simeon and chucks him in the prison. I mean, imagine if the brothers, they don't come back. Imagine if they just stay there in the land of Canaan. That, that, that despite their brother, their father trying to appeal with them to go back, we need more grain. They just say, no way, we're not going back. Then they become destitute and impoverished there in the land of Canaan. But they don't. They, 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 they continue to push through. They continue to own up. And they eventually find salvation. Repentance is, is, is in many ways a, a very simple decision, but it's also very challenging. I mean, really, for the brothers, it is, it's a change of mind, a change of perspective. It's, 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 it's looking at their past and making decisions to be different in the future. There's a simplicity about it. Right? And, and you know, for us as, as, as Christians, when we, when we become Christians, we go, a lot of us have gone through radical transformations of life in that process. Great change. But a lot of times I think what happens is, is when we first get baptized, we go through that period of repentance, and then repentance becomes something we rarely do. And the reality is, as Christians, we keep sinning. We continue to sin. And we should actually become very good at repentance. Because it should become a more common uh, aspect of our lives. But oftentimes with, with parents, when they're, you know, uh, when you're raising kids and you want your kids to become Christians, uh, sometimes the realization dawns on you, and if it hasn't, it really should. Uh, and if you haven't had kids yet, this realization will come, though it should be a realization you already have, and that's you're not perfect. And a lot of times as parents, we can panic about that and think, man, I, I don't do everything perfectly. Uh, my kids are going to become Christians. You, our kids don't become Christians because we live lives of perfection. Our kids become Christians when we demonstrate repentance continually in the home. Because the most important things kids need to learn from their parents is that of changing. Because they're going to make lots of mistakes. They're not going to be perfect. They're going to struggle. Just like we ourselves struggle. And so we need to be a people that demonstrate, especially if you're a parent, repentance. But we need to be a people that in general are constantly pursuing repentance. Amen. And sometimes it's major things, guys. Sometimes we'll make, we'll, we'll make serious decision after serious decision that has traumatic consequences in our lives. And that'll bring in, that'll usher in a period of man, serious repentance. Other times it's just that, that long, you know, grind, if you will, of, of changing and being molded and shaped. That's all brought about by repentance. That's why the famous you know, restorator, reformist uh, Martin Luther said, all of, all of a Christian's life is repentance. Amen. All of a Christian life is repentance. Not just that first moment in conversion, but the ongoing process of following God. And so we need to become a people that are excellent at repentance. And this chapter, these chapters here, give us some great principles. You know, and the first one about repentance that these, this narrative gives us is a demonstration that it has to be internal, not just external. That it needs to be internal, that it needs to be a change, an inner change of depth, not just the external of what is seen. 
right? And there's this great scene, you know, there's a lot of great commentaries and, and books that unpack that scene, right? Uh, and you might, I mean, the brothers have had that feast that we read about in the last chapter, and it says that they set off the next morning, and they're fired up, right? I mean, they're, they're excited. They've had a successful mission. They've avoided the death penalty in many ways. They've rescued Simeon. They're heading home with Benjamin, uh, and, and they get pulled aside pretty quickly. And even there, even as they try to explain their scenario to, to the, the steward there, it, their logic is good, right? I mean, 44 verse 8, they even point out, hey, when we came back, you know, you guys gave us our silver back, and what did we do with it? We brought it back. They're saying, like, look, even logically, if we were going to steal from you, we wouldn't, we would have already stolen from you. Why would a thief come back, acknowledge that there was oversight in terms of what, what they had been given? Why would we do that? And so I imagine as their steward is beginning to go through things, the, the brothers are feeling pretty smug. You know what I mean? As each one is kind of cleared, there's that, okay, good. You know, brother after brother after brother after brother. But then when, when Benjamin's bag is dropped, and that silver cup is found. You get that one sentence there, verse 13. That's what's depicted on this, on this famous painting. This tearing of their clothes. I mean, the, the, the joy shattered. The triumph they were feeling in an instant is gone. It all begins to unravel. I mean, that great confidence of, hey, if you find it, kill us. That's pretty confident. Gone. You know, and they do what was customary at the time of that of tearing their clothes. Ripping their clothes. This is not the Hulk busting out. Right? This is them visibly trying to express what they were feeling in their hearts. This, this tearing. This breaking of their hearts. You know, and for the brothers, it's a good sign. It's a good sign of, man, they are, they are contrite about the scenario and the consequences of what's going to unfold is weighing on them heavily. And this can, this outward tearing of the clothes, it can be done in harmony of what's going on in the heart. But it can also be done in hypocrisy of what's going on in the heart. It can be done in hypocrisy. And you see this elsewhere in the Bible. Right, you don't have to flip there, but in Joel chapter 2. If you're familiar with the prophet Joel, uh, one of the minor prophets, uh, Israel is going through a period of discipline, much like the brothers have. Now, there God is using similar tactics in terms of famine, but his primary tool in the time of Joel is that of locusts. And the prophet Joel begins in chapter 1 uh, with, with the prophet rebuking Israel from God, basically saying, you know what, the first swarm of locusts came by and devoured almost everything. The next swarm of locusts came by and they cleaned up what the others had left. And yet again, another wave came and has cleaned everything up. And there's nothing left. Mm. Right? And then in chapter 2, you get this appeal from God. Joel chapter 2, 12 to 13. The prophet says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart. And not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate, 
slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And it's an interesting thing that Joel is saying there, right? The, the, the rebuke coming to Israel at that time is, yes, you're being disciplined. And they were, they were all really upset about being disciplined. And they were probably fasting and mourning and tearing their clothes and putting on sackcloth and covering their heads with dirt. You know, they were going through the motions. But the reality is, from, the, from, from God's standpoint, it wasn't deep enough. That they're doing this outward, you know, tearing. But they're not really getting to the heart. I think there's something to that even in our story of how Joseph has dug deeper and deeper and deeper. Not just dealing with this outward behavior, but really looking deeper for the brothers into their heart about what they've done and the choices they've made and how they sold their brother out for their own gain and to do away with what they viewed as a problem in their life. Sin's a difficult thing, guys. And we talked about this several weeks back when we, looked at, uh, when we looked at the older brother Judah more closely and how Judah makes small choices to envy, to harbor malice, bitterness, and envy in his heart or jealousy in his heart towards Joseph and how that hardens his heart. And then he makes more severe choices, like marrying outside of the faith. And then he makes more severe choices. And it goes down this dark path. Right? And how does that happen? The Bible appeals to us time and time again to understand that sin has a blinding effect. That it has a deceiving effect. That it has a callousing effect. That repetitive, habitual sin leads to a callousing, a hardening of our hearts. And so the ability to have our hearts torn... Or rended, having our garments rended, the ability for that to happen becomes harder because it's become more calloused. And that's the brother's scenario, right? That's why it's taken Joseph tightening his screws more and more and more to try to break through that hardness of heart that is there. You know, thankfully for the brothers, it seems to have effect. But what about us? Because when we become Christians a long time, we can. You know, we, we can become very good at kind of saying the right things, perhaps, or even maybe demonstrating the right behavior outwardly, but pay no attention to the deeper thing that's going on. We can look at, you know, sin and, and, and see it just on the surface as missing the mark or as a failure, and it is that. I want that. But it's also more than that. Yeah. I mean, you think about even the language a lot of times the Bible uses about sin. He uses strong language, like sin is not just, you know, a, 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 a whoopsie, it's idolatry. It's not just like, hey, I tripped up and I made a mistake. No, 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 you were unfaithful to God, you adulterous people. I mean, you, you think, why is the Bible using that language? Because God is trying to move our hearts. He's trying to help us to see that, that real repentance involves this tearing of our hearts. Not just, not just lamenting the behavior or even the consequences of the behavior, because all sin has consequences because it's all, it's all not some arbitrarily chosen thing. It's, it's, it's the, the creator of the universe saying, hey, here's the path. And if you stray from it, there will inevitably be consequences. But we can lament the consequences rather than the rebellion against the creator. 
And I think that's what God is trying to drive the brothers to deal with, is this deeper repentance that must happen in their hearts. Not just some external show, but this internal cutting of their hearts. You know, among the brothers have it. How do we know they have it? Because of what follows. That it's not just talk. It's actions. Judah steps up. And again, we talked about Judah uh, a few weeks ago. And, and we even hinted at this event. I mean, this is where Judah shines. And he's been the ringleader leading the brothers astray in terms of how they deal with, you know, deal with Joseph in the past. But here he shines. And he numerous times has, you know, in, in this text... You, you, we, we get these long, you know, this long uh, retelling of the conversation that he's having with Joseph about their scenario. But the key part is there in verse 33. We know it's the key part because it's breaking point for Joseph. It's probably what Joseph had arranged the whole time that he was working towards. Trying to uncover Judah's guilt. To soften and cut his heart so when the moment came, he would do the right thing. Not just say the right thing. Not just mouth the right words. But actually make the right choice. And actually demonstrate that he is a changed man. That he is different. That there's been a shift on the inside that is visible on the outside. And he says there in verse 33, Judah says uh, to, uh, to Joseph, he says, now, now then please let your servant, talking about himself, remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Well, hmm. Here's Judah who has been so far in the text as we've looked at him over the last months, self-centered. Self-serving. All about him. All about what's going to benefit him. What's going to please him. What's going to make him happy. The what's best for me mentality. And, and, and Joseph and God have been chipping away. And this is the pinnacle moment for him. And Judah doesn't just talk about it. He offers up himself in place of Benjamin. He goes into great detail into the destructive uh, reality of what that would do to his father. Which again, he had callously disregarded the first time. And Joseph knew it. I mean, Joseph knew that, yes, this is a pinnacle moment, but man, there's still been temptations. That's why when he sent them back, everyone laughed when he read the part about, hey, don't quarrel. Because he knew there was one sense of a reckoning before Joseph. And Joseph was incredibly gracious with that. But he knew that also when they returned back to dad, it's kind of like another reckoning. Hey, dad, we've been lying to you for 20 years. 20 years of deceit. They probably had a funeral for Joseph. And Judah callously endured it all without saying a word. His heart had become so hard. But here... You see, repentance has had the effect. The guilt has worked through. It's cut his heart. And when he's put back in the same exact scenario again, by the very one whom he had did it to, he chooses the right thing. Now that's repentance. 
That's what God looks at and says, hey, you know what? The angels in heaven rejoice over that. Amen. Not us sitting around talking about all the right things. Not us, not us talking about hypotheticals. No, 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 no. In the moment, making the choice and following through with the action. That's repentance. And the Bible appeals to us to follow that pattern over and over again. Take whatever you want out of the Gospels, Matthew 3, verse 8, or Luke 3, verse 8. What does the prophet you know, John say to those crowd of religious people? Hey, produce fruit and keep it with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as father. You see what he's doing? He's saying, Your words don't really mean anything, guys. Your family heritage as religious followers of God, that doesn't mean anything. What matters is your deeds that demonstrate the fruit of your repentance. Amen. You can't just act or say that you do it. He says, hey, actually needs to be seen in your life. You know, Paul tells you know, the, the people he's preaching to, the Gentiles, there in Acts 26, verse 20, uh, the second half of verse 20, he tells them that they should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. He doesn't tell them, hey, repent and turn to God and prove it by chatting about it with other people. He doesn't tell them, hey, go, you know, send, send some text messages talking about what you're going to do. No, no, he says... Prove it by your deeds. Show it in your actions. It should be clearly seen, not just said. Mm. And we see this from Judah. And look at the effect. I mean, his, the profound change in Judah, mm. and in his actions, his, his willingness to, to give up himself for the sake of his younger brother and by extension the sake of the father. It, it, it breaks Joseph's heart. It moves Joseph. I mean, that's awesome. This room is full of stories of that. Many of us became Christians because we saw change in someone else and were inspired. Because finally there's someone who actually lives it. Not just Talks it. Finally, there's someone that's a, that's a visible, tangible example of what it means to follow God. You know, I grew up in a, in a household of great hypocrisy. With parents who, who, who talked a lot of religion. Talked a lot of Christianity. But did not walk very much Christianity. And I remember the first time I, I, I sat down with some campus brothers who shared their faith with me. Uh, and had a dinner with them and, and sat there as they talked openly about the, the, the sin in their lives uh, and, and encouraged and spurred one another on towards pursuing repentance. And then I remember seeing these guys out sharing their faith on campus and it shook me. Because for the first time in my life, I, I saw someone when I read the Bible, their, their lives looked like that. They weren't just in a church on a Sunday talking. It was, it was seven days a week lived, practiced, visibly seen. And man, it, it, it shook me. And I appeal to you. If you're sitting here and you, and you know, man, 
life. There's aspects of my Christian life where it's become a lot of talk but not a lot of action. I appeal to you to look at look at the brothers here. And look at look at the yes, the rending of the heart, the, the inward change. But look at the impact of action on what that does and how that impacts other people. Because there's people in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, that if your light can shine as you live, they'll be impacted by it. And for many people, they have this perspective of Christians that they are a bunch of hypocrites. And when you actually live a repentant life, you shatter that. You help them to see that that's, that's not true for everyone and everywhere. And Joseph was tremendously impacted. And then we get this incredible scene of, of the brothers stunned and in awe as, as the, 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 the ruse is lifted, the deception is set aside. Joseph reveals himself. There's great tears, great fear, great celebration. But there's a remarkable thing here we see about repentance. Then we see it from Joseph, actually, not the brothers. You know, there's, that, there's an interesting bit in 2 Corinthians 7 when it talks about how godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's such an interesting phrase, the last one. That it can leave no regret. Because a lot of us repent. Why? Because we're full of regret. We've done something incredibly stupid and sinful. And we've a lot of times reached, reached the consequences and, and the discipline from God as a, as a result. And this idea that, hey, I can look back on past events and not regret it. Mm. That's kind of a hard concept of repentance. But we see that beginning to play out here. And it's going to continue to play out in the chapters to come. Of the power that repentance has to not just change your present life and your future, but also in some sense rewrite your past. I mean, Joseph tells the brothers there in, in, in chapter you know, 45, verses 4 to 7, as he tells them, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold in Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. I mean, Joseph has tremendous balance here. So a lot of times people can look at hard, you know, difficult times or, or times of, you know, like these brothers have been through, and they'll want to sweep the bad part under the rug and say, hey, look, God's used it for good. Joseph doesn't do that, right? I'm your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. But Joseph also helps the brothers to see, yes, you did that, but zoom out a little bit. Look at the wider picture, boys. God had a hand in this. God was at work. Even when you meant it for evil, God has used it for good. And he tells them it was, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Down in verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. It's an incredible thing. But Joseph is taking his past, and in some sense, he's, he's adding more details into the narrative that were not visible at the time. And if they were, they were very difficult to see. That's the power of repentance. 
That's the power of allowing God's power to come into our lives and change us. We align ourselves with God. And by doing so, we bring ourselves into God's grand plan. We align ourselves with the sovereignty of God. And that has the ability then to rewrite even your past. Again, not, not sweeping the, the negative under the rug as if it never happened or there are no consequences for that. There are severe consequences. But helping us to know, because it is something we need to know a lot of times, especially when we've made major mistakes, is you know what? God is bigger than even that. God is greater than even your greatest failure. That there's nothing in this life that can separate us from God. Amen. You know, as you leave here today, I do, I do hope and pray that man, you're inspired by how the sovereign God works to bring about the salvation of Israel's family. But I hope you're also sobered and comforted by the fact that that family needed saving. Like we talked about, many these were genocidal guys that had, had raped, contemplated murder. In genocide, they obviously had murdered. That they had deceived. That they had disobeyed. And they had done so over a long period of time. And yet, even they could be saved. Amen. Even they could be brought to repentance. And then I think a lot of times the point of the Old Testament is not just, hey, look at the, the consequences and avoid all that mess, which is a good lesson to learn. But a lot of times we don't learn that way, do we? We have to go and dabble in the mess to then realize, oh, that's messy. Right? But when we do do that, one of the temptations is to think, is, man, I'm beyond recovery. No, you're not. No, we are not. Amen. Because God is greater than even our greatest failures. But as we pursue repentance, we've got to be a people that pursue it as God outlines it. Again, allowing that guilt to be uncovered and laid bare before the one to whom we must give account to God. We've got to be willing to have that guilt uncovered before one another. As we talked about with the brothers collectively acknowledging their guilt. And then as we begin to, to have our hearts change, we've got to see that, yes, it's got to be not just this external going through the motion. No, no, it's actually got to be an internal heart change. But we can't stop there. we also got to push that heart change out into our life, day in and day out, and live lives that are radically, radically different than the world around us. When we do that, we begin to open the door to salvation. And salvation not just in the present and in the future, but also in many ways in the past. Because that repentance leaves no regret. And of course, even as our text closes, you have, as, as Israel realizes, Joseph's alive, Benjamin's back, it says he was revived. He was, he was brought back to life. That's that refreshing aspect of repentance. Let's be a people that practice that day in and day out. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand together and sing one final song. You know, Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the brothers' great errors, God. Because we know we will all have times in our life, God, where we'll follow them into sin. Father, we thank you that you give us the gift of repentance. That you grant it to us. That it is grace for us to feel guilt. 
God, help us to see these things differently. Help us to see guilt not as an enemy to be avoided, God, but a guide to be listened to. We pray that we can be a people that, that humble ourselves and allow our guilt to be uncovered before you and before one another. And Father, as it's uncovered, God, we pray you do, you know, cut our hearts. You help us, God, to, to be cut, not, not just externally, but internally. To not have calloused, hardened hearts to turn away from you, God. But to allow that to be reopened and for flesh to reappear in souls. Father, we pray that your spirit can help us, God, to not stop there. To allow the work of repentance to come into our lives, Father. We pray, God, that even this week as we go about our days, God, that we can be a people that, that keep in step with your Spirit, God. And we pray that your Spirit can poke and prod us to goad us if necessary to follow you in our actions, in our choices, in our decisions, tangibly day in and day out. Father, as we, as we follow you, as we recenter on you, God, we know that times of refreshment will come. That will be revived, that will be renewed, that we will be transformed. And Father, we long for that. We long to please you in how we live. Help us, God. Pour out grace and mercy on us as we pursue these things, God. We thank you for your kindness, your, your tolerance, and your patience, God, that we know is all given to lead us to repentance. God, help us to work in harmony with that plan. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's stand together and sing.